heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the voice of a nation. I'm Wallace Garneau, guest hosting for Malcolm. And today I want to talk to you about integrity, honor, the U.S. Constitution, and the politics of control. I want to start by talking about interpretations of the Constitution and the two methods that are used to interpret the Constitution. The one you and I probably use, I think generally people on the right tend to use it, conservatives, would be the originalist interpretation of the Constitution. Now this is a way to interpret the Constitution very literally based upon what it says. We read it, we consider the words, the sentences, the paragraphs, Uh, We use dictionaries that tell us what the common usage of those words, the definitions at the time the Constitution was written were. Uh, We can be assisted by the Federalist Papers, other writings of James Madison, who drafted the Constitution, and Alexander Hamilton, who was the primary author of the uh, Federalist Papers. Other letters from the Constitutionalist, uh, the, the people, the founders in the Constitutionalist era. And we can even look at the transcripts of the debates uh, when they were talking about the language of the Constitution as they were drafting it. Uh, you know, James Madison wrote the original draft, and then they spent who knows how long arguing about what changes they wanted to make to that draft. So we have all these sources that we can use to determine what the original interpretation of the U.S. Constitution was supposed to be. That, unfortunately, is not what most law schools teach as the proper way to interpret the Constitution. Today, most law schools teach what they call the living document interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. And the way the living document interpretation works is they say that the Constitution was not written for one time or one place. It was not written to be static, such that it means only what it says. It's supposed to to grow and adapt to the times. So the actual language of the Constitution under a living document interpretation isn't very important. What's important is what the Constitution should say. What's important is what the people interpreting the Constitution would have written had they written the Constitution themselves. This is the predominant view. If you go to a if you study constitutional law, This is the predominant view that's taught in our law schools for how to interpret the Constitution. They don't teach the text. They may look at the text. They don't really teach the text, though. Uh, They teach that it's a living document that means really whatever, I guess, the Supreme Court says it means at any given point in time. Five people. They are the Constitution. To a conservative, this concept of the Constitution being completely fluid having meaning that is completely subjective, up to five people, you know, majority of the Supreme Court, uh, and, and constantly changing. That's not, once you go that way, you don't really have a constitution. That's more like uh, what the English have, a common law system, in which the court system essentially is the constitution, and uh, you change it by changing court precedent and, uh, and, and, and whatnot. That's kind of what 
the left wants the United States to have today. So we're, we're they're kind of getting rid of the Constitution. Uh, when Obama was president, there were a lot of historians that were calling us a post-constitutional society. But anyway, those are the two ways to interpret the Constitution. You have the originalist interpretation based upon what it says, using the dictionary definitions that were common at the time it was written. And then you have the living document interpretation. Now, with that in mind, those two competing ways to interpret the Constitution, I want to talk about uh, the uh, oath of office. Now, I took an oath of office when I joined the Marine Corps. But you also take an oath of office... Really, I think anybody who gets a job with the federal government, I think uh, they all take uh, it's some oath of office. They're, they're not all exactly the same. The president's oath of office is a little bit different. Uh, as I said, somebody in the military's oath of office is a little bit different. But this is the oath of office that senators take, uh, members of the Supreme Court, uh, people in the House of Representatives, and, and, and all of, of the everybody who takes an oath of office. There are certain sections of it that are identical, and I'm going to point those out after we read it. So, the oath of office says, uh, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will faithfully, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. That's the oath of office. Now, usually when you look at the oath of office, people tend to focus on the first of two clauses. Now, those two clauses are that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And then the second clause, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. Now, I'm actually going to focus on the second clause, because uh, when you take an oath, whether it's an oath of office or oath joining the military or, or you just swear by your sacred honor to do something, you know, that's what you're doing. You are swearing your sacred honor. You are saying, if I don't obey this oath that I'm freely taking, then I have no honor. And when I look at that oath of office, and I look at particularly that second phrase that I talked about, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And then I look at those two methodologies for interpreting the Constitution. Well, I would hope everybody here would agree that if you're interpreting the Constitution based upon what it actually says, using the definitions that were common at the time that it was written, uh, and utilizing those other documents, letters, and, and the, the, the Federalist Papers and all of that, to determine where there's question what those definitions should be, I think if that's how you're doing it, somebody would look at that and say, well, yeah, you're bearing true faith and allegiance to the statement that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States, which these people have solemnly sworn to do. But what if you're using the living document interpretation of the Constitution? Can anybody really, I mean, I, I get people will tell you that they believe in the living document interpretation. And so to them, they would say, well, I am bearing true faith and allegiance to the supporting and defending the Constitution. But are they really doing that? Or is the living document interpretation of the Constitution really just a cop-out? Is the intent here really to support and defend the Constitution of the United States? Or is the intent here to ignore 
the Constitution of the United States. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, there is no true faith and allegiance toward the Constitution in the living interpretation. The living interpretation is purely subjective. It can mean something completely different to everybody who reads it. Whereas the originalist interpretation, yeah, there might be a little bit of disagreement in some of the finer details, but when we, when we look at the First or the Second Amendment, for example, uh, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That seems pretty clear to me. Now, does that mean that the that the government can, can, can't ban a bazooka? I, I don't know. There, there's some, some finer details that, that are open for debate, but surely it means they can't just go around banning all kinds of guns. So if you, lose, if you use living document interpretation, a lot of people using the living document interpretation, they look at the Second Amendment and they say, well, first of all, you've got a whole other clause there that you're leaving out about a, about a well-regulated militia. But even without that, we have police officers, we've got the National Guard, we've got armed forces. If the armed forces have guns, and if the police have guns, and if the National Guard has guns, then the right of the people as a group to keep and bear arms has not been infringed. And that's kind of the argument they make, that it is a collective right, not an individual right, that we have a collective right to have armed people in terms of the police and those other groups, but that there is no individual right to bear arms. You don't have a right to own a gun. That's what they, what they would tell you. You don't have any right to own a gun. You have a right to be protected by people that own guns, or that, that, that have guns as a part of their service. Well, the problem with this is that's not what the Constitution says. It's not what the Second Amendment says. It very clearly was intended as an individual right to bear arms. Uh, but there are two things that are going on with this living document interpretation of it that attempts to interpret it away. One of those is if they show that they're not bearing true faith and allegiance by trying to twist the words of the Second Amendment into something that it's not. If they really wanted a living document interpretation of the Constitution, what they should say is, yeah, it says you've got the right to bear arms. And in 1789, they did. But this isn't 1789. This is a living document, and I don't believe in interpreting it based on what it says. I believe in interpreting it based on what I think it should say, or based upon what I think we needed to say at this point in time. And if you do that, if you go back and say, I'm going to look at what it should say today and not what it does say as it was written a couple, 200 and almost 50 years ago, 230 years ago, all of a sudden, uh, you don't, it doesn't matter what it says. You have no constitution. You can, you can do whatever you want. You know, Leon Trotsky said uh, that what old men write in hallowed halls doesn't matter that all that is necessary, all that is needed, is to enforce. Trotsky said you don't have to pass laws. It's a waste of time to pass laws. Just take your men, go out on the street, start enforcing things, and people are relatively intelligent. They will figure out, based upon this guy got killed and this guy didn't, what the laws are. Somebody does something you don't like, kill him, and somebody else will see that. Well, I guess I won't do that. And that was, that was Leon Trotsky's view, that the laws don't matter. What matters is what you enforce on the streets. And I look at that, 
and I look at the living document interpretation of the Constitution, very, very clearly, these people are not bearing true faith and allegiance to the same. And so I look at people in the Senate. I look at people in the House. I look at Joe Biden as President of the United States, Kamala Harris as the Vice President. I look at some of the people on the Supreme Court. Are these people bearing true faith and allegiance to the same? Well, in the case of the House and the Senate, I'm sure some of them are. In the case of the Supreme Court, I'm sure some of them are. But how about the person that we're going through the nomination process who can't tell us what a woman is? She said, well, I'm not a biologist. I had a chance to try that myself today. I was getting a little bit of a Facebook debate. And uh, somebody said, well, thank you for mansplaining that to me. And I said, mansplaining? I'm not mansplaining to you. I'd have to be a man to do that. And she said, well, I can see your profile picture. I can see your name. You look like a man to me. And I said, well, are you a biologist? And she said, well, aren't you a man? I said, I'm not a biologist. How the hell would I know? So, so much for mansplaining. But, you know, I was doing that as a joke. And we have somebody being nominated for the Supreme Court, going through the nomination process for the Supreme Court. And she actually said, I can't answer that question because I'm not a biologist. I'm not qualified to tell you what the definition of a woman is. Ah, people, this isn't rocket science. Now, if I had been Ted Cruz, I think I would have set that up separately or differently. Uh, there's a, a movie coming out on the Daily Wire where the whole movie is this guy going around the world asking people what a woman is. And nobody wants to answer. It goes to some places in, in the answer, but then they think the question is absurd. You know, why are you asking me that? Of course I know what a woman is. But when he asks it around the Western world, nobody wants to answer the question. And and, and so it's 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 just patently absurd. Had I been Ted Cruz, I think I would have started out with asking her what a dog is. And she might have said, well, you know, four legs, it barks, people have them as pets. And so once she answers what a dog is, then you come back and you say, well, can you tell me what a woman is? And when she says, well, I'm not a biologist. Oh, but you can tell me what a dog is. Don't you need a biologist to tell me what a dog is? So you don't need to be a biologist to tell me what a dog is, but you do to tell me what a woman is. So you, you, you kind of have her against the ropes if you do that. And I really, I guess I kind of wish Ted Cruz would have done that. But I, I look at these people, though, and I think, where is the true faith and allegiance to the same? Where are they bearing true faith and allegiance to the same? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez attacks our Constitution, attacks our Constitutional Republic, attacks our national values constantly. Is she bearing true faith and allegiance to the same? How about Bernie Sanders? Bernie Sanders, who once suggested that he asked the question that he doesn't understand how we can have 35 brands of deodorant when we have babies that are starving. And the first time I heard that, I thought, well, gee, Bernie, what are you going to do, feed the babies deodorant? But of course, that's not what he meant at all. What he meant is that we have businesses that are free to produce all these different brands of deodorant but there isn't enough food for babies. And there are a number of ways we could look at that. We could look at that by asking the question, for example, 
is there enough food to feed babies? You know, when was the last time somebody starved to death in the United States, not because they had an eating disorder, but because they lacked access to food? That's a question we can ask. When was the last time somebody legitimately starved to death in the United States? Well, we can't answer that question because starvation as a cause of death in the United States is so ridiculously rare, if it happens at all, that the CDC does not even track it as a cause of death. We don't have starvation in the United States. What we have are people talking about uh, about uh, food security. You know, they don't know what, where their next meal is going to come from. Well, I've got news for you. My refrigerator, I looked through it earlier. I think I'm eating out for dinner. My wife is at work right now. I think after I, I think I'm going to eat out for dinner tonight. I don't know what I'm going to have. I don't know where I'm going to get it. Am I going to get a pizza? You know, what am I going to do? Well, according to these statistics about food security, I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. So I guess I don't have food security. And you know, they twist these things like that. And, and it's, it all goes back to the living interpretation uh, of the Constitution. It all goes back to this postmodernist sense that if I just take all of the things in a, in a Scrabble board and throw them on the floor, I have every work ever done. Because, you know, according to postmodernism, it's actually how it started. Words have multiple meanings, and as a consequence, and they do. If you look in the dictionary, you'll see that most words have more than one definition given. Uh, so that part of it's true. Words do have multiple meanings. So you start looking at words as you string them together into a sentence or into a paragraph or heaven forbid, into a book. And if you were to chart every possible interpretation based upon every possible definition of every possible word in that book, well, the number of possible interpretations just grows exponentially until, you know, the book, say, the, the length of Moby Dick, or heaven forbid, the Bible, you have a nearly infinite number of possible ways to interpret it. And, you know, give the devil his due. For a computer, that would be a real problem. Because a computer can't think. A computer can only follow its code. I know we talk about artificial intelligence. But I'm, I'm in IT. I do that professionally. And I can tell you that the most powerful computers today are no more intelligent in terms of the ability to think than is a Texas Instrument calculator from 1972. The software is more complicated. The hardware can process a whole lot faster, which means you can write software that is even more complicated. But in terms of a line of code, the computer having a choice between A or B that isn't driven by variables it doesn't control doesn't exist. So for a computer, trying to find the right way to interpret a very large book with lots of different words, each having multiple meanings, could be a problem because a computer can only brute force its way through. A computer would have to check every single possible interpretation and compare it to other ones, and then based upon criteria that the programmer gave it, it would start to try to determine 
which interpretations might be better. You and I do that every day uh, just as a part of thinking. That is where people are better than computers. So, yeah, we might debate finer topics about Moby Dick, but every one of us is still reading a book about Ahab and the White Whale. Every one of us is still going to know. I've actually read Moby Dick, so I'm going to give you a little inside information on it here. Every one of us who has read the book can tell you that half of the book isn't even a story at all. It's like an instruction manual of whaling. That was the one thing about Moby Dick I didn't like. I did not have to know the mechanics of a harpoon to know that if you throw it at a whale, it'll stick. So, anyway, the the interpret the 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 living document interpretation of the Constitution kind of goes along with that, in that all of a sudden the Constitution can mean whatever anybody wants it to, and they actually teach this at law schools. Law schools predominantly today teach the living document interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, and so you look at that and you say, well. If there's no integrity there in that interpretation of the Constitution, if that is not bearing true faith and allegiance to the same, uh, then how much integrity does Harvard Law actually have? Are they teaching law? Are they teaching constitutional law? Or are they teaching bullshit? I think you and I know the answer to that. They are not teaching constitutional law. They are teaching ways to argue yourself out of constitutional law. They are creating a post-constitutional society. And these people, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden back when he still had a brain, Kamala Harris, they are not bearing true faith and allegiance to the same. They have violated their oath of office. And because that oath of office is a sacred oath, they have laid their sacred honor on the line. And some of these people, maybe some of them haven't thought it through. I'm, I'll be generous. But some of these people damn well knew what they were doing. They knew when they took that oath of office that they had absolutely no intention of keeping it. Now, what do you think about somebody that takes an oath of office that says, I'm laying my sacred honor down. This is what I'm going to do. And they have no intention. Not only don't they do it, but even when they said they were going to do it, even when they said, I swear or affirm. They had no intention of doing it whatsoever. Why do we elect these people? That's the root problem. I'm making it sound like I'm blaming all of these people in government positions. Well, bureaucrats, I guess I am, because we don't elect them. But the people we elect... The one thing we know about somebody who believes, for example, in a living interpretation of the Constitution is that when we're going to vote for them, when we're thinking about voting for them, we know they're going to take that oath of office. So we know that they don't have any, they, they don't have any honor. And if they don't have any honor, then how can the office they hold have any integrity? That's the problem. So we, we look at all of these things, people talk, you know, Corruption in office, Joe Biden taking tens of millions of dollars from Ukraine and Russia and China, you know, the Hillary Clinton, the Clinton Foundation, all of this. When we look at that, those are problems. Those really are big problems. But are they root causes? Seriously, I don't think they are. 
I think the root cause is that the American people consistently seem to vote for people they know lack integrity and that they know lack honor. And we do that. We vote for people that we know. What kind of society do we think they're going to make? Statesmen have honor. We're not electing statesmen. Too many people. You know, why is why do people want to vote for Bernie Sanders? Is it because they think that he has integrity? He lives in six houses and tells us we're greedy. No, they vote for Bernie Sanders because he says the magic word, free. Vote for me, I'll make college free. Vote for me, I'll make health care free. Vote for me, you'll never be hungry. Don't know where I'm going to get the food because nobody's going to want to make it. The tax rates they're going to see. But vote for me and I will do everything to make everything perfect. We will live in a fantasy land of unicorns and lollipops if you just vote for me. And people hear that and maybe they think, I know he's full of crap. I know we can't actually do that. But maybe he can do some of it. At least he'll write off my student loans. At least if I get sick, I won't have to pay to go to the doctor. So, yeah, that's why they vote for him. They vote for him because of the promise that it will be free. As long as we're talking about things like free health care, let's talk a little bit about health. I know Malcolm likes to take long walks every day. I think he said he walks three miles every day. And waves at some people, some of them wave back, some of them don't. Yeah, I, I, I personally, I, I do cardio also, but I do a lot of weightlifting. Uh, but one thing that we can all do in order to try to make our health better is to listen to our sponsors. So stay tuned. I've got some great content for you coming after the break. And here's a word from our sponsors. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. Do you know there's no other condition that I'm aware of where vitamins and supplements make such a big difference than COVID-19? We have an abundance of data that we need to be replete with a variety of micronutrients, and that includes vitamins, minerals, and other substances our bodies need. I rely on Healthy Cell Super Boost. That's Immune Super Boost. It's a a gel pack that can be taken every day. I like to do it before I exercise and before I go out. It's a wonderful supplement. It gives me the Immune Super Boost that I need. Go to HealthyCell.com, use the promotional code OUTLOUD, and get a discount on your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. It tastes great, comes in a convenient squeeze gel pack, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. 
Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best. Freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications. America out loud talk radio. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both in the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. The silent majority has spoken. We say, let the silent voices be heard. You can be the voice of change. Contact our producer at libertyatamericaoutloud.com. Libertyatamericaoutloud.com. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Second half of the show. We're going to talk about, I think, what this kind of segues into. When you have people in office that lack honor, and people, it's most of them. This is not a small problem. I remember, oh geez, I must have been about 20. Dan Rostenkowski, I think his name was, got in trouble for a a sex scandal. But it wasn't really, he did have a sex scandal, but that wasn't really what he got in trouble for. What happened was, somebody figured out that in the congressional office, in the congressional building itself, there was a post office in which members of the House and members of the Senate were buying stamps with campaign funds, which is perfectly legal. You have to mail things for a campaign. So they're buying stamps with campaign funds. And then they were going back and they were selling the stamps to the post office. That very same post office right there in the Capitol building. Turns out it was created specifically for this purpose. And guess what they were doing with the money that they got when they sold stamps back to the post office? If you're saying that they put it in their own personal bank account and used it as their own personal money, ding, 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 you win a prize. That is exactly what they were doing. And it wasn't just Dan Rostenkowski or Rostenkowski, whatever his name is. I'm going off the top of my head. I don't remember it. But anyway, uh, it wasn't just him. It was virtually everybody in the House of Representatives and the Senate. I think there were five or six members of the House that weren't doing it and one or two senators, but it was, it was virtually everybody. And, uh, you know, it was a level of corruption that was absolutely ridiculous. It was going to turn into a huge story. And Dan Ratnikowski, who had also recently been picked up on a, on a sex scandal, was given a choice. Do you want to go down in a sex scandal? Or do you want to go down as the fall guy for the stamp thing? And then we'll take care of you. We won't prosecute you. And uh, you'll get your pension. And uh, the rest of us won't have to worry about getting in trouble. Well, Ratnikowski took the deal. And uh, the stamp scandal is all but forgotten. But the people that were buying stamps and then selling them 
and then pocketing them. Essentially, what do they call it? Money laundering. They're essentially using the post office to launder campaign funds into private funds. They stayed. One of those people, Joe Biden, is still in office today. Matter of fact, as we know, he is the president of the United States. There's some other people that were in Congress at the time. I believe Nancy Pelosi was there. There were probably a number of people who were there at the time. They're still there. And the level of corruption, I think, over the course of my life, it's gotten worse, not better. I think the quality of the people that we're electing has gotten worse and not better. There's a lot of talk about Republicans have moved to the right. The Republican Party, I know my politics haven't really changed uh, since I, well, they, I was I was a Democrat when I was a kid. My uh, my family were they, they were all they were all atheist Democrats, uh, and I've never really been an atheist or since I could think about it a Democrat. I've been a, re- a Republican since uh, probably midway through Reagan's first term, and I've been Republican ever since. I found that I resonated with Reagan and. And, and I've continued to resonate with Republicans. Uh, voted for Ross Perot the first time I ever voted. I've always considered myself maybe not... Well, certainly I've considered myself sensible and mainstream. But today a lot of people call me an extremist. And yet my views haven't... They've, I've modified them here you know, over the, over the years. Nobody is exactly the same when they're 50 as they were when they were 20. Uh, but in terms of where I am on the political scale... I haven't really moved that much. And yet, the political scale has moved. Uh, it's, it's like Winston Churchill once uh, was asked, you know, you were, you were a conservative, and then you were a liberal, and now you're a conservative again. Why do you keep moving? And Winston Churchill said, I haven't moved. But the parties have. Well, that's kind of how I feel, except that the parties have only been moving in one direction. Bill Clinton, in the 1990s, ran on a party of small government. He actually said... The era of large government is over. Try saying that as a Democrat today. Bill Clinton's still a Democrat, but if he tried to run on the platform that he ran on in 1992, he would be a Republican. And he would use a Republican slogan because one of the slogans that he used in 1992 was Make America Great Again. So it's a small world, isn't it? Uh, But when we elect these people, and we know that they interpret things in funny ways, we know that they don't believe that the way to interpret a law or, or really anything is based upon what it says, and they make everything subjective. So they're up, they're able to, to take a law and ignore it or do something else with it. They completely ignore the text of laws, the text of the Constitution, all of that. Well, one of the things that they seem to be doing is utilizing law and utilizing ideology and utilizing the media to try to control us. So one obvious example of that, of course, would be coronavirus. We saw the lockdowns, the mask mandates, and you still, at least for now, if you fly an airplane, have to wear a mask. Uh, not just at the airplane, the airport. You go to the airport, and all of a sudden you're in this weird world where you're wearing a mask again. You can't take it off until you get off the plane and get your bags, and as soon as you walk out the doors of the airport, you take it off again, and you're a free person until it's time to fly home, and then the mask comes back on. So we see these things. 
locking down businesses, saying that some people are essential workers and other people are not. Well, we know now from from Dr. Uh, Peter McCullough and, and, and others, we know now that a lot of those mandates were absolute garbage. Uh, we, we know that the, the we, we know that a lot of what we were told about COVID-19, not just early on, but throughout that process, we know a lot of it was wrong. And we know that the people who were telling us that it was wrong knew it was wrong at the time they were telling us. They were lying to us. We know that. Even the mainstream media at this point knows that they were lying to us about COVID-19 all the way along. Why wouldn't they lie to us? I mean, seriously. Living interpretation of the Constitution. You don't interpret laws based on what they say. Well, why would they interpret the science based on what it says? Anthony Fauci went so far as to say, I am the science. Okay, now he's the science, and, and, and the science itself is not scientific unless it agrees with him. That's kind of how they treat it, isn't it? So COVID-19 very, very clearly was done to control. What about climate alarmism? We can look at the costs of all the things that are going on with the climate alarmism. Is that being done to try to address climate change? Or is that being done to try to control the public? Just the other day, Joe Biden told NATO, told the European Union, told the world really, that the United States was going to help Europe break its dependence on natural gas from Russia by liquefying American natural gas and shipping it to Europe in huge, huge quantities, tankers of natural gas going across the ocean and delivering our natural gas to Europe. Sounds like it might be a plan. There's only one problem. He's not going to increase the number of leases available for natural gas companies to drill for natural gas you know, on public lands. So, on the one hand, he wants to help break Russia's stranglehold on Europe's on Europe energy. On the other hand, he wants to continue to reduce our ability to produce natural gas and to produce cheap and reliable energy. Now, people, natural gas this past winter. I'm lucky. I'm in Michigan. Our natural gas company buys natural gas in the summertime. They buy enough that they think they can get through the winter. And so I didn't see last winter's spike in natural gas. But nationally, natural gas last winter was up 50% over the year before. 50%. I live in Michigan. It gets cold in Michigan. I have to pay to heat my house. That's done with natural gas. Next year, it's projected, it was projected to go up 50% again. Well, now that Biden is going to simultaneously reduce our production of natural gas while also shipping massive quantities of natural gas to Europe so that that natural gas is no longer available in the United States for us to heat our homes or, or to run our, fern, or run our stoves, or all the things that we do with natural gas. Electricity, we make a lot of electricity with natural gas because it's so much cleaner than coal. Well, the demand for natural gas isn't going to go down. If anything, as the population of the country slowly climbs, so does the demand for natural gas. As we shut down coal power plants, most of them are being replaced with natural gas power plants. 
so our natural gas needs keep going up. If you constrain production while demand either does not change or goes up, well, we know what happens to the price. We saw it last year, and ladies and gentlemen, I'll bet it doesn't go up 50% next winter. I'll bet it doubles. So it already went up 50%. Now it's going to double. That'll be 300% over where it was just a year ago today. Think about that, because you're going to have to, you know, at some point, Americans are going to have to make decisions like, do I heat my house or do I feed my family? Those are real decisions, real decisions that Americans are being forced to make, and they're being forced to make it because we have these nonsensical policies. But they're only nonsensical if you truly believe that the purpose of climate alarmism is to improve the climate. As soon as you give that up, as soon as you say, well, okay, they tell that for the adults, but the real purpose, and I said adults, not adults, they say that for the adults, the real purpose of climate alarmism is about control. And that's not just true about climate alarmism. I mean, it's really true about so, so very many things. There are only two basic kinds of societies. And every society on Earth, they don't necessarily meet one or the other extreme, but they fit somewhere between these two extremes. The first one is like what the United States was originally created as. Each person owns their own productive capacity and can do with it as they wish. You can start a business. You can work for somebody else. You can stay home, and if you can afford them, you can eat Doritos all day. You can do whatever you... You can't force other people to help you do it, but you have the right to do with your productive capacity whatever you want. That's one kind of society. That's what the United States was founded as. The second kind of society is that in which all of the productive capacities of all of the people are the property of some elite group and then the elite can use the productive capacities of uh, the people, however the elite wish. That's how the pyramids were built, by the way. And the pyramids are a very fitting thing. The first time I went to Poland, my wife is from Poland, so the first time I went to Poland to, to meet her family, right after we, we, we got married, uh, I land in, in Warsaw, and then we, we drive into town, because of course the airport isn't right downtown. So we drive into town, and there's this huge building. Uh, it turns out it's called the Cultural Palace. And when I say it's a huge building, this thing is an absolute monstrosity. And it's an absolute monstrosity of pure Cold War communist proportions. It's got one giant tower in the middle that seems to go out forever. And then it stretches out on all sides, and there are towers on the on the outskirts of it that aren't quite as big. It's... It, it really is the dominant structure in Warsaw, downtown Warsaw. Uh, and it turns out that when the Nazis were pulling through Warsaw, Stalin actually paused his invasion uh, for two weeks to give Hitler the time to raise Warsaw to the ground. So he did. He raised Warsaw right to the ground, left very 80% of the city. There was not a brick standing in another brick. Raised it straight to the ground. And then the Soviets came in, and for the next 10 years, they built this cultural palace. And if you Google it, and please do, you can find pictures of the Warsaw Cultural Palace upon the time it was finished. And the striking thing, other than the cold 
war communist monstrosity that this thing is, is that there was absolutely nothing around it. Warsaw was still razed to the ground. So the communists did not worry about rebuilding the capital of Poland until they'd already erected this monument to the greatness of the Soviet Union, the greatness of the communist model. And the pyramids, same thing. You build the pyramids. Well, that's not building society. It's literally building the place that you're going to bury the pharaoh when he dies. But it's a monument to the pharaoh's greatness, just as the cultural palace, monument to the greatness of the Soviet Union. Well, the reason for that is that Stalin understood that feeding and clothing the people, all the things Bernie wants to do for free, it's hard to do that. In a free market, you don't have to, you don't have to worry about it. There's demand for food. There's demand for clothing, shelter, all these other things. If in a free market, people will find ways to, to meet that demand. They'll, they'll, they'll buy materials, buy land, build a house, sell it. The free market takes care of those things. You don't need someone doing it centrally. And as a consequence, nobody's really looking in a free market. Now, we did look at America and say, what a great society. But it was great because of all the great things happening within it. It was, it was great because it was a society in which instead of people waiting for food, food waited for people. And, and so, yeah, that's kind of great. You know, turn on the light switch, you have lights. That's not true everywhere. In, in parts of the, it's not true in California anymore. So, yeah, it, it's kind of great living in a society where things work and where people aren't starving to death and, and, and all of that. But in Poland, which was being forced to become communist, if somebody said, you know, this isn't a great society. I haven't had food in three days. Where's the clean water? I've been living in a tent building this damn building for two years. Well, you can say, of course it's a great society. Look at that monument. Who could build that building but us? So the building, the pyramid, if you will, becomes a testament to the greatness of the society that the leader can point at and say, yes, we are great, look at that. And to do that, you have to control the public. Farah did not get the public to build the pyramid by paying them to do so. Incidentally, he did pay most of the workers. Interesting story here. Uh, the, 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 the pay was, 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 you couldn't store water in the desert, and water is very important in the desert, so he actually paid the workers with beer, and the beer was, uh, it was, it was not very strong. It had just enough alcohol in it to prevent it from going bad. So we paid them in beer. Well, make a long story short, his scribes began to, instead of handing out beer, writing down on pieces of paper how much beer somebody was to get paid. And they were stamped, so they were official. And it didn't take long. People started trading the paper instead of pouring beer. You know, much easier to trade the paper. So that was the first paper money in human history. So you can tell your friends, uh, the first money, paper money ever used was backed in beer. It wasn't backed in gold. It was, it was backed in beer. So interesting story. But the point is, yeah, Farah did pay most of the workers, but they didn't have a choice. 
It wasn't like uh, he he hired them and said, I'm going to pay you this amount. You say, no, that's not enough. So we'll, I'll pay you more. That's not how it worked. Pharaoh ga- gathered up the people, in many cases slaves, and uh, he forced them to work on the pyramids. Whether you were a, a slave or whether you were a skilled mason or, or whatever you were, you were forced to work on the pyramids. If it hadn't been for the pyramids, the Egyptians could have done more to develop their society, uh, more food, uh, better access to water, you know, all these different things, better medicine. They could have. They weren't working on those things as much as they could have because there was so much of a focus on having something that you could point to and say, "Look at that pyramid. Look at how great we are." Well, I don't know what monuments our leaders are planning on having us build. But that is the driving force. It is about getting the people, getting control over them, and then using the productive capacities of the people, not for what the people want, but for what the elite want. You see, what I don't think people understand is that while there are people I truly believe this. There are people out there who truly believe in building an equitable society. I've met some of these people. I mean, some of them really are believers. But somehow, everyone in a position of power who wants equity, who wants equal outcomes, I should define my terms. When I say equity, I mean equal outcomes. Everyone who wants that, who ends up in a position of power, and this isn't just true in the United States. You can go back throughout recorded history. There are very few examples. Augustus Caesar would be an example of somebody who didn't fit this bill. But everybody who lives in a society searching for some form of equity, some form of equal or more equal outcomes, that gets into a leadership position, they always exclude themselves from whatever that equity means. So here's your ration, and you know Mao had a, a fleet of, of, of world-class chefs cooking for him, just as one example. Stalin certainly lived in opulence. Fidel Castro, his daughter is worth over $2 billion. How many people in Cuba have $2 billion? Well, the daughter of the former dictator does. And so... Fidel Castro, this is why when you go into a communist country, or really any autocracy, you will always see big statues and big murals of the leaders. Stalin and Trotsky, one of the things that they disagreed on, Trotsky believed, you've heard the saying that, that religion is an opiate for the masses. Well, Trotsky, Stalin, Lenin, they were atheists but they believed that the masses needed their opiate. So while they were against Christianity, for example, they were not against religion. No, they wanted a state religion, but they differed on what that should look like. Trotsky believed that you should worship communism itself. You should worship the model. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez might say you should worship climate change. You should worship cleaning the climate. Uh, But you, you have a model that you worship. Well, Stalin and Lenin believed that the people needed a god in the image of a man. So, yeah, you get a great big mural of Stalin or of Lenin, a big statue and reaching for the sky. That's a god. That's what the, the people are being taught to worship that. 
so yes, yeah, Stalin was telling the people of of Russia to worship him, people of the Soviet Union to worship him. And you see this sort of thing again and again and again in societies that are created to control the people for the betterment of, when they say the betterment of society, understand that where you have serfs and lords, you only need so many lords. Most people are going to be serfs. So that's our lot. Most of, the vast majority of us would be serfs. The vast majority of the people that want equity would be serfs. But those who are lords would exclude themselves from the serfdom. They would exclude themselves from the rationing. And they would give themselves all of the spoils that they then deny the rest of us. This is how it worked in the killing fields of Cambodia. This is how it worked in Cuba. This is how it worked in not just communist countries, autocracies all over the place. Hitler was rich. So were those around him. Joseph Goebbels was rich. You know, all of these people, were Herman Goring, they were all rich. Other fascist leaders, Pinochet in Spain. A lot of people don't know that Spain stayed fascist until the 1980s when Pinochet finally died. Well, Pinochet lived like a king. You think Kim Il-sung or Kim Sung-un, whatever his name is, in North Korea, you think that he's poor? The people in North Korea are poor. You can look at a satellite image of the Korean Peninsula at night. You can see exactly where the demilitarized zone starts because that's also where the lights stop. South Korea is roughly as rich as the United States. Happened over just 70 years because they used free markets. North Korea doesn't even have lights. But if there is one bright spot in North Korea, that is where the dictator lives. I guarantee you. Our, our government, it's, it's, it's like a mafia. They tell you they want an equitable society, but only for the people. The leadership still gets to live in wealth and opulence. And it, it happens again and again and again. So they use these things, climate change, COVID-19. There are other issues. It's not just those two. Gun control. Uh, creating crimes so that they can then blame the guns for the crime. You know, there's a reason they don't want to prosecute people anymore. It's not because they think that it is evil to take somebody who commits a crime and punish him for his crime. I, I, I refuse to believe that they think that it is evil to punish somebody for committing a crime. Some of them probably do. I'm not saying that there aren't any idiots in the political left. Of course there are. But the ones that come up with these insane ideas, it's not that they're insane. It's that they have a motivation they're not sharing with the rest of us. And that motivation is to control. You want to go after the guns? Get crime to explode. Blame the crime on the guns. You want crime to explode? That's easy. Just stop enforcing the law. It's okay to have laws, as Trotsky told us. But the laws themselves don't matter. What matters that is what you enforce. And what are they enforcing? You know, it's legal now to steal a th almost $1,000, a shoplift almost $1,000 in, in, uh, in, uh, in San Francisco and L.A. 
And yet, if I were to post the content of this episode on Facebook or on Twitter, I post a link to you can listen to it, but if I were to take it as text and just throw it out there, there's a pretty good chance it's going to get shot down. It's a pretty good chance it's going to get censored. Because they're trying to make uncontrolled speech illegal. We're very close to that, people. And I'm not I'm not trying to scare you here. I'm just I'm just telling you the facts. We are very close to living in a society in which if you say the wrong things, you can go to jail for it. With COVID-19, we had a dry run of telling children to turn in their parents. I used to be horrified growing up hearing stories about that in Nazi Germany. Now it's here. Justin Trudeau, the way he treated the truckers and the uh, when the truckers tried to shut down uh, tried to shut down Ottawa. Well, Ottawa needed to be shut down, people. Come on. We they they were looking for their freedom. Look what they got in return. They actually froze the bank accounts of people that had donated to the truckers and not just took away what they gave to the truckers. No, they took away their ability to buy food and clothing. And I, I don't know what the status of that is right now, but I mean, think about the kinds of people who do this. These are not good people. These are people that took an oath of office they knew at the time they took that they had no intention of carrying through. These are people with no integrity. These are people with no honor. These are people that only want to control the public. And yet these are the people, by and large, that are running the House, they're running the Senate. The President of the United States is one of them. We are close to nominating one for the Supreme Court. People, these are the rich and powerful. Republicans aren't the ones with money anymore. The ones with money today are running on the political left. And there's only one way we can stop them. We have to get loud and get proud on America Out Loud. Thank you.